I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Wherever you are in the world, a big hello. My name's Julia Gillard and I am Chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. And I'm also very pleased we have a sister institute in Australia now at the Australian National University. Uh, Thank you for joining uh, this webinar event. I am joined by a fantastic panel and I'm going to ask each of them to speak in turn. But to set the context, uh, in Australia, in the UK, in many parts of the world, there seems to be a new, renewed focus on gender-based violence. In the UK, women took to the streets in the aftermath of the murder of Sarah Everard. In Australia, our community debate and our national politics has been completely transfixed by a set of very distressing scandals in Australian Parliament House, initiated when a young woman of courage, Brittany Higgins, stepped forward and told the story about how she was raped in Australian Parliament House at the time she was serving as a ministerial staffer and the person who attacked her was also a ministerial staffer. Around the world, in many ways, others too are sharing their stories of gender-based violence. We are having this webinar to explore questions around that, most particularly, what are the trends in gender-based violence against women? Are things getting better or are things getting worse? What do we now know about the best policy solutions and are governments adopting those solutions? And then number three, and I think very importantly, are we in a cultural moment, a moment of cultural reckoning around gender-based violence? Sarah Everard was not the first woman to lose her life walking home, yet the reaction has been an outpouring in the UK. While there's never been a story before like that told by Brittany, Brittany is not the first young woman to be the subject of attack, even violent attack, whilst at work. And yet there has been a huge outpouring in Australia around that too. Is that telling us that we are in a moment where there is more mobilisation and more focus on change than there has been in the past? To explore those questions with me, I want to turn now to our esteemed panellists. I'm going to start with fellow Australian Elizabeth Broderick. Elizabeth was Australia's longest-serving sex discrimination commissioner. She founded and convened the Champions of Change strategy 
activating influential men to take action on gender equality. She has led 13 major cultural reviews into Australia's leading national institutions, including the Australian Defence Force. In 2017, Elizabeth was appointed by the United Nations in Geneva as a special rapporteur and independent expert. She is currently chair rapporteur of the UN Working Group on Discrimination Against Women and Girls. Elizabeth, over to you. Thank you very much, Julia, and it's such a great pleasure to join everyone today. I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia. Uh, I'm sitting here on Indigenous land, the land of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, and I want to start just by paying my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and also to recognise their strong advocacy for equality over so many centuries. Um, today we are discussing a new cultural reckon reckoning and we're asking the question, is it happening in Australia and the UK? And it's so such a delight to be here with you, Julia, um, our very first female Prime Minister, the 27th Prime Minister of Australia. Unfortunately and sadly, um, haven't, ha we haven't had a woman since, Julia, but Julia, don't worry, we're working on that. Um, Julia, you said on International Women's Day this year, you said, I think feminism comes in waves and I can really feel another major wave is gathering. It's gathering from activism in our own country and around the world. And I have to say, I couldn't agree more. But let me explain. Over the last four months, women around Australia have seen an escalation in the fight to address sexual violence. They've seen it in the workplace, in schools, in the community and at home. Many Australian women today are feeling angry. They're feeling overwhelmed. But over the last few months, there has emerged a new urgency, a resolve that's lifted and energised at the same time. Because across the political spectrum, across the socioeconomic divide, women and men from all different backgrounds, First Nations women, corporate women, young and old, union women, we're all recognising that we're all in this together. And this focus on misogyny and violence against women, although it began decades ago with strong advocacy from the feminist movement, from civil society, with advocates like Rosie Batty, who if you're online and you're Australian, you'll know of Rosie's great work. But it's been the recent stories of human suffering that over the last few months have gripped our nation. Now we have strong prevalence data here in Australia um, uh, in relation to sexual harassment as well as sexual assault. Uh, just last year, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, released her report into sexual harassment at work. So we know that um, four out of 10 women have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace in the last year and one out of four men. We know that eight out of 10 of the perpetrators were male and indeed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander are women this at higher rates. We also know that one in four women have experienced attempted rape or sexual assault, and that compares to one in 20 men. The other thing I can tell you about Australia is that our reporting systems are not up to scratch. I mean, if sexual assault, only one in 10 women reports the incident, an alleged incident of sexual assault to the police. So Kate, armed with all this data, made some 55 recommendations um, last year, but we've seen limited government response. It seemed 
up until a few months ago that her vital report and recommendations had been shelved. But that all shifted because on January the 25th this year, a young woman named Grace Tame from Tasmania, a little island down the bottom of Australia, which also happens to be my birthplace, she became our Australian of the Year. Grace told the story of how at school she'd been subjected to years of grooming and sexual abuse by her maths teacher, the very person she'd gone to for advice when she was struggling at home. And together with others, she'd campaigned to change the law in Tasmania, which up until just last year had prevented women from telling their own stories of abuse in their own words at a time of their own choosing. So on that fateful day, on the 25th of January, what we call Australia Day, in her address to the nation, Grace said, she said, when we share, we heal. I remember my abuser saying, don't tell anybody. I remember him saying, don't make a sound. Well, he can hear me now using my voice amongst a growing chorus of voices that will not be silenced. And it was this call that set off a string of events, including Brittany Higgins, who came forward a month later to tell her story of rape allegedly perpetrated against her in the ministerial offices in Parliament House. Not only that, shortly thereafter, another three women came forward to tell their stories of alleged sexual abuse by that same perpetrator. And shortly thereafter, a beautiful young woman called Chanel Contos, a woman from a prestigious Sydney girls' school, detailed on her Instagram page her story of sexual assault as a 13-year-old schoolgirl. Within weeks, there were more than 5,000 direct testimonies of sexual assault written by young women on Chanel's Instagram feed. And even today, more and more are coming in every day. These stories have ignited a movement which has seen several members of the Australian Parliament, including the Attorney General, accused of sexual assault, rape and workplace harassment. This movement has rocked the most senior levels of business and politics. We've seen mass demonstrations held across Australia calling for legislative and systematic change. So what do all these truth tellers have in common? Are they part of a new movement, a new cultural reckoning? Well, these truth tellers are all young women. What we're seeing in Australia today is part of a global movement of young women's activism, young women speaking truth to power, telling their stories and demanding change. So today, in the middle of a global pandemic with inequality deepening in every region of the world, we stand also at a place of new opportunity, a place where we're witnessing new and creative forms of civic participation and action. And as I've described, much of that activism is being led by young women and girls. So yes, I do believe we are in a moment of cultural reckoning. And I also believe it can't come fast enough. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and thank you for sharing so powerfully the uh, words and attitudes of the Australian truth tellers. I'm sure that many Australians have uh, resonated with those words, but for people watching in the UK, some of that material would be very new to them. So it's important that it's shared, vital that it's shared. 
I want to turn now to Farah Nazir. Farah is CEO of the Women's Aid Federation of England. She's been a charity executive with over 20 years of director-level experience. She's worked on women's rights and gender issues for most of her career. She's committed to feminist principles of leadership and she's put those into action as a local authority councillor for almost a decade, working on local service provision, health, environment and accountability. Farah previously worked for BOND, the UK membership organisation for NGOs, working on international issues. Uh, Farah, over to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Julia and, and colleagues. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. This session couldn't come at a more critical moment to examine our responses to violence against women and how we can drive change. Um, I completely endorse and agree with everything that Elizabeth had said. So perhaps to, to start at, at, at that point of sort of critical interest and moment, the recent death of Sarah Everard has sparked national outrage and an outpouring of grief and a conversation about the pervasiveness of male violence in our society here in the UK. From women experiencing coercive control in their relationships to girls being sexually harassed at school, as we've seen via Everyone's Invited, um, which seems to be something quite parallel to the Instagram um, uh, uh, piece that, that Elizabeth described, Hundreds of thousands of, of, of women are, 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 are marking their experiences as young girls through that mechanism to their experiences of sexual harassment on the street. We know the experiences of rape, forced mar marriage, so-called honor-based abuse. These crimes are very much driven by men's power and control over women. What was particularly I think, disturbing for many of us um, when reading and understanding the context around Sarah Everard's death was the further form of deep discrimination that became undeniable with the absence or, if you like, underreporting of other women who'd had their lives taken. Nicole Smallman, Biba Henry, Joy Morgan, Gillian Grant, Natasha Wilde and, and, and others. Many of these women's names didn't make the headlines almost certainly because of the discrimination they face on the basis of race, ethnicity, disability, and other forms of inequality. And I think that that really just brings home the, 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 the additional discrimination and hardship for women who, who are intersectional when it comes to being heard and seeking justice. And at Women's Aid, we were, we were deeply concerned about the government's immediate, the UK government's immediate response to these murders. You know, a fund um, was proposed to increase street lighting and CCTV. Um, this fund does nothing to tackle the deep-seated attitudes that drive these forms of violence and abuse, nor do they support women to seek redress. And frankly, it's an insult to women experiencing violence and abuse. Um, what was additionally quite telling about it was that this was the government's response. This is the way that they thought that violence could be addressed. So to your, to your first answer, uh, to your first question, Julia, I think, I think whether our policies are working or not is probably a no in terms of where, what our starting place seems to, seems to be. Um, I want to take a moment to focus specifically on, on domestic abuse um, and, and a bit about Women's Aid, Women's Aid, for, Women, Women's Aid Federation of England. For, for those of you who, who are not aware of us, we are a national charity operating across England and we focus specifically on ending domestic abuse for women and children. 
And we define domestic abuse as an incident or pattern of incidents of controlling, coercive, threatening, degrading violent behaviour, including sexual violence, the majority of cases by a partner or ex-partner, but also by a family member or carer. It's very common um, in the vast majority of cases. It's, it's experienced by women and perpetrated by men. Um, domestic abuse is the most prevalent form of violence against women in the UK, and the scale is staggering. We know that we, we know recorded figures um, are at 1.6 million women experiencing domestic abuse. Um, it costs our society 66 billion every year. One in five women, 20% uh, of all women, have experienced some type of sexual assault since the age of 16. And a recent survey here in the UK found that 97% of young women aged 18 to 24 have experienced sexual harassment. Um, so an equally unfortunate picture <laughs> to the one presented by, by, by Elizabeth um, for the UK. Um, and we know, um, again, as, 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 as per, per Australia, the, these recorded statistics are really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, women are still not able to feel that they can disclose domestic abuse or report sexual violence to, to the police or indeed other agencies. In fact, only one in five women will ever report to the, to the police when it comes to domestic abuse. And I think in terms of cultural reckoning, to to successfully prevent and end domestic abuse or indeed any form of violence against women, we do need to critically address the sexism, inequality and misogyny that's rife within our society. And we need to acknowledge that it is women that are most likely to be at risk of fatal, most harmful forms of violence uh, perpetrated by men. 91% of domestic abuse uh, crimes are uh, that cause injury are perpetrated by men against women. And the overwhelming majority of female domestic homicide victims are killed by men. Set against this context, it's, it's deeply regrettable to see that prosecution rates are falling. The criminal justice system, um, as we all sort of expect and would hope, should be about protecting victims and guaranteeing justice and bringing perpetrators to, to, to account. However, all too often, this whole system is failing survivors, these brave survivors who bring their cases to justice, uh, to seek justice. And, you know, of, of, of the 1.2 million cases that were reported to the police in 1919 to 2020, only 4% of these cases saw completed prosecutions, which again, begs the question of how seriously are we taking this as a society and how well are our institutions geared towards addressing more and domestic abuse and how important is it to our leaders and our politicians. In terms of uh, government response, um, to perhaps start on a more positive note, um, we did in fact see royal assent um, of the domestic abuse Act last week, which is a really positive step forward. We've seen real results, which I think mean will mean a lot to women in the UK, but also perhaps set, set some precedents and templates more globally. So we've seen strengthened um, family courts, recognition of as children as victims in their own right, a guarantee that survivors escaping domestic abuse will have priority housing, and a local duty to fund accommodation for women escaping domestic abuse. 
However, um, we see significant gaps in the legislation as well. We cannot afford to, 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 to be too cosy about it. Um, we've seen a, an absence of support for migrant women. Um, they're not, they're not um, guaranteed these same protections and the pro-contact nature of family courts, which the government knows causes harm to survivors of domestic abuse, has failed to, to be changed through this act. And another critical omission, I think that this almost goes to the heart of the way that government and policy um, perceptions respond to, to VOLG, to violence against women and girls, is that the word refuge, and particularly women's refuge, is not mentioned at all in the Act, um, an Act that's supposed to protect the survivors of domestic abuse, the majority of whom are, are women. Um, and this sort of brings me to, to another point, which I think is, is deeply worrying, the, the concept and the idea of gender neutrality, which is increasingly dominant in the discourse when it comes to addressing domestic abuse. Um, you know, domestic, domestic abuse, in fact, you know, violence against women and girls is not, is not gender neutral by definition. However, why governments seem to want to default to this is, is completely beyond me, other than to think that, again, they are not centering women and girls and the evidence um, through their policy making. Certainly in the nine weeks that I've been <clears throat> at um, Women's Aid since I, I took up the role, I've seen leaders of local authorities openly mock um, murders of women on, on, on social media, feeling they can do so with impunity. Um, I've seen um, the word women removed from local domestic abuse strategies. Um, it's, 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 it's quite a revelation when you look into how policymakers, leaders and funders think about women and ending Borg. And I think to your question, the next question, Junior, that you pose us on, are we, is there a moment of reckoning? I think my, my, my perspective is I certainly hope so. Um, it, it certainly feels like a moment, but I think it will take our sector and women globally to really propel and drive forward this movement. movement. It's not going to happen on its own. And I think that the, um, the powers that be seem to want to dispatch us off with um, CCTV and um, a few more plain uh, clothes police officers and a few more street lamps. Um, and we won't we won't be tolerating that. But I think we need to unite as a movement and really propel and build on this quest to drive policy change and shift societal norms. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for that contribution and that perspective. I'm going to turn now to our final panellist, to Liz Kelly. Uh, Liz is a professor of sexualized violence and she's also director of the Child and Woman Abuse Studies units, Unit and holds the Roddick Chair on Violence Against Women. She's been active in the field of violence against women and children for 40 years. She is the author of Surviving Sexual Violence, which established the concept of a continuum of violence. And she's also the author of over 100 book chapters and journal, journal articles. In 2000, Liz was awarded a CBE in the New Year's Honours List for Services Combating Violence Against Women and Children. Liz, over to you. Thank you, Julia. Um, and thank you for the invitation to think with everybody today. And I want to think as a long-memoried woman. Um, I think we've been in moments like this before a number of times. 
we've been rocked by revelations about high-profile men or by research or events that have revealed the scale of violence against women and girls, either in general or in particular spaces. And I think only time will tell whether this heralds um, a real and sustained shift. And one of the things I want to remind us about, because I think we need to take responsibility for some of these things, as well as wider organisations, is that we have this pattern of revelation, discovery, and then it's buried again. And we see it most clearly in relation to child sexual abuse, this process of discovery, burying, rediscovery, reburying. That has happened over 100 years um, about child sexual abuse. And sexual violence in particular, I think, has always been on the margins of policy and prevention. Governments and organisations have found it much easier to address domestic violence. It has had much more investment and, and also much more innovation in um, ways of responding. And I think there are a number of traps or missteps that um, I want us to think about together um, that we need to be aware of. Um, and I think sometimes these are part of that process of discovery and, and, and burying. Um, one of them is, is that you have to create something new. So with child sexual abuse, the fact that we recognised it in the family wasn't enough. So then we went to look at sexual abuse rings. Then we went to look at child abuse images. Then we went to look at sexual exploitation. And in each particular time, one form and or context was visible and the rest was invisible. I compare it to a clock face where there's a shadow over. Um, and somehow we've got to find a way to hold everything in vision at the same time. Um, there's a, there's a, a push to find new language or to find language that draws attention to what it is we're trying to um, make visible. And I think misogyny and hate crime, um, arguably, um, are that. I don't think all violence against women and girls is motivated by hate. I think, it, I think some of it is, certainly. But if we focus only on that, we're again reproducing this idea that only some of what we need to care about is in the frame. Most sexual harassment at work is not motivated by hate. It's motivated by entitlement, by seeing women as less than, by seeing them as available to men to... Um, establish their mas masculinity through. And if we focus only on hate, we're not going to be able to speak to that behavior. Another thing I think this idea of toxic masculinity, as if traditional masculinity is absolutely fine, there's, we don't have a problem with that. Um, so I, th I think I want us to think about the language that we use and what it makes visible and what it pushes to the margins. And the other thing I think is really complicated for us is this demand that we demonstrate the harm of what's done to us. It has to be trauma for it to matter. And I've always thought that the most important thing about the whole continuum of violence, it's not just about safety, it's about our freedom 
the the reality and threat of violence limits women's um, space for action, as I call it, and it limits it in all sorts of ways. We all know the ways in which it limits our behaviour and the work that we have to do in order to not be limited by it. The work we have to do, the safety work we have to do in order to not be confined in um, traditional female spaces. So I think violence against women is made possible by conducive contexts and cultures are part of that. But if we really want to prevent it, one of the things I think we need to do is to do much more work on what precisely is it about this context that makes it conducive to violence? What is it that we need to change? One size fits all doesn't work. Uh, workplaces are very different if they're female dominated or they're male dominated. If it's a workplace where physical danger is part of what you have to engage with when you go to work compared to being able to sit at, sit at a desk and um, work through your laptop. We need to think about each space, each context, um, and how does, where are the lines of power here? What's normalized and how? How do intersectional issues play out in this space? And most importantly, where are the fault lines? Because those are the potentials for change. But we need to understand where the fault lines are and we need to do this in a much more focused way, um, I think, than we have previously. I think we've thought we could, I, I too have thought, you know, we just need to create the best um, prevention messages and the best prevention programme. And actually we need to do some much more um, foundational work, finding out what it is in each of these contexts that makes this possible and how we might change. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. And I'm actually going to uh, move to... Uh, a set of questions that I think relate to your contribution and are certainly streaming in on the uh, Q&A function. Uh, you, you've talked about uh, seeing all of the clock face was your analogy. Um, coming in on the Q&A function, we've got a set of questions effectively about movement building. So there's an acceptance that there is a wave and there's new energy, but two specific questions about movement building. One, there's a question around how the energy of young women, uh, women from more diverse backgrounds, which Liz talked about, 
how that can be joined with uh, the older feminist movement. So people are talking about personal experiences as young women going to feminist meetings and being the only young woman there or potentially uh, the only uh, non-Anglo woman there. And they're asking how we can broaden the movement and bring this youth energy together with, uh, I think Liz used the beautiful expression, uh, feminists of long memories, I like that, uh, how we can bring, bring this together. And there's also a set of questions about the role of men in this movement for change. So I'm happy to uh, take any uh, contribution on those questions from any of our panellists who would like to uh, have a go at those questions. Elizabeth, please. I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy just to make a couple of initial remarks. Um, because you're right, intergenerational um, movement building is just so critical. I still remember when I became a sex discrimination commissioner and I met with a number of um, older, you know, feminists who were saying the problem is young women don't care about the movement anymore. Where are they? They're not marching in the streets. They haven't got their placards, et cetera, et cetera. And it seemed to me that actually um, the feminist movement was moving to the blogosphere. It was onto the internet and marching in the streets, well, is one representation. But for many young women, that's not necessarily they, the way they want to actually take the movement. And any women's movement or any social movement to remain relevant has to evolve. And I think that's the beautiful thing that I'm seeing now. I'm seeing the evolution of a feminist movement. Um, I was in um, Ethiopia in Addis Ababa for my work with a, as a special rapporteur with a working group just before COVID hit. And I saw beautiful examples of um, young and older women coming together, but also because it was so unsafe to speak out in any given nation, because we're seeing the shrinking of civil society space, there's never been a more hostile environment for women's human rights defenders. What was happening was through the internet, um, women in one nation were advocating for change in another nation and vice versa. That was so that those women's activists would stay safe, but knowing that, you know, they would do their part and the other nation would do theirs. So, I, you know, they're bringing together workers' rights and women's reproductive rights, um, you uh, Aboriginal, Indigenous women coming together with, um, you, know, uh, you know, all different groups of women. I think the internet, the blogosphere, Instagram, you know, Facebook, all those things are enabling this to happen. And, you know, my refrain, particularly to um, women who are more used to marching in the streets and whatever, is that we need to get on board with this as well. Having said all that, Julia, I do recognise that having access to the internet, there's a huge digital divide between men and women. And that's not possible in every country of the world. And also there's a huge economic divide. But I do think that cross-movement building, we're seeing it happen. And I think it's a really exciting part of what is otherwise a pretty dim, dim situation. Thank you. Uh, Liz or Farrell, would you like to buy in on this movement building question or the role of men or both? So somebody yes. put a comment saying um, about women's groups in the UK not being as uh, strong or vocal as elsewhere. I'm not sure I agree. Um, I think we have seen um, this resurgence and it possibly happened here earlier than it did in Australia 
for me, this has been going on for six or eight years. Um, this this refinding of rage. I, I think I think the first bit that brings you into the movement is rage. Rage, either at, at what how you have been treated or how women who you are close to have been treated or how women in general are being treated. That 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 rage is a motivator, um, and. And then you need to find something to do with it uh, beyond um, the initial thing of demonstrations. And th those are hugely important. And um, But actually, if we're going to create change, we need to um, learn, as I did as a young woman, how to be strategic. Um, I still go on demonstrations, um, but I also want to be able to achieve some to feel like I've achieved something other than just be consumed by anger. Um, in relation to men, I think it's so fascinating the way this question has uh, uh, come up so many times, as if men have no idea what they might do, what they could do, uh, what they ought to do. Um, I think there, there, are, there are a minority of men who've, who've known that and have organised and who um, write and think and act. Um, and, and the thing that I most want men to do is to call out other men. They are in, they are in spaces, often where there's no women, where the normative statements that... that enable this to carry on are made. And uh, I've done quite a lot of work with uh, men who are on domestic violence perpetrator programs. And the ones that I think you've really got it are the ones who actually say, actually, I stopped going to that pub or I stopped going out with that group of men uh, because actually they were perpetuating the thing that I wanted to change in myself. Um, so, that's what men need to do. They need to engage with each other and create a change so that masculinity does not have to be based on demeaning women. Thank you. Farah. Thank you. Um, to the question on movement building, I think movement building will be critical to propelling forward the, the current trends and interests and awareness that we now have on Borg. I think movement building is hard. Movement building is, is difficult. People come, um, come together, but initiated by rage, as Liz has said. But I think it's change that propels them, but it's also common commonality and sisterhood. And we often come to movements with a sort of broadly common goal or ideal, but very quickly we can be dragged into our differences, um, be that differences of... Um, engagement or approach, marching versus social, or perhaps history. So do, do younger feminists have the lexicon and the history of, 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 of long-memoried feminists? Um, and do long-memoried feminists understand sort of the, the, the norms and, 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 and preferences of, of, of younger feminists um, or younger women who might not yet describe themselves as feminists, but are really angry and want to do something? So I think there's, there's got to be a more sisterly approach to allowing a range of perspectives and a range of differences. 
um, recognizing the goal for change is, 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 is really out there and not within the sisterhood. Um, and I think we, we have to do more as, um, as organizers, as, as, as individuals in positions where we can convene to support those spaces. Um, and I'd call on anyone, anyone listening who is in one of those positions. I mean, we all are on the panel, but there, are, there will be others who are in the audience today to really create those spaces for flexibility and really have our eye focused on the, on the ultimate goal, which is about cultural shift and, 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 and moving norms and to be strategic. I mean, I was, I was really inspired by, by Elizabeth, but I'm, I'm, I'm also very cynical about moments because I think moments, you know, they come and they go. And certainly in the UK context, you know, we've got, like many other contexts, you know, we've got the COVID recovery, we've got potential economic decline, we've got, um, you know, we've got Brexit here in the UK. These things could overtake um, very easily this moment. So it's, it's very much up to us to, to really take command of this and, uh, and drive it forward, but do so as inclusively as possible. We don't want to lose women on, on the way. Um, and I think it is about thinking strategically, what can, you, what can you achieve? What can we achieve this year? What can we achieve next year? What can we come together on? Um, and allowing for those sort of differences. Thank you very much. We've had that, this series of questions at the sort of big movement building end, uh, but we've also got a fantastic question which raises issues from the individual end. So I'm, I'm going to read it. My question is, in these types of forums, listening to amazing, strong and powerful women, it is refreshing. When speaking in my own personal circles, work and social, I feel completely different. You can make comments on assault, harassment and gender bias that has happened to you personally. And still I find the general consensus is ideas giving the man the benefit of the doubt. Comments like, how horrible would it be if she was lying? What if she just wants a payout? And the problem is women doubting women. Men are just worried about getting falsely accused. How are we supposed to ever achieve safety and equality when this rhetoric is still being said? How are you supposed to speak for women in situations of abuse when they aren't given the same understandings as men? Uh, would anybody like to respond to that? I mean, we can talk in the lofty heights of policy development, legislation and this and that, but it's in those everyday conversations and that's where change happens. It's in those micro moments. Um, and, yeah, we've all met the guy who says, oh, well, wait a tick, you know, she, how do we know that's true? How, how do we know she's speaking the truth? Um, I have a whole range of kind of quick one-off responses to that one. It is, okay, so let me think. I see a woman telling me that she's been sexually assaulted, abused. I'm asking myself in that moment, is she more likely to be part of the 2% who bring vexatious complaints or the 98% who are telling the truth? Um, so the, the quick rejoinder, I think, has some, some place in those things. But the fact is... You know, we have to engage with people who have, you know, so the whole range of views, essentially. And what I've found, I suppose, in the work that I've done is I try to meet people where they're at. So I try to establish some kind of common ground. There's pretty much, I, you know, without exception, I can agree with one small thing of what you've said, even though I might be violently opposed to your ideas. I'm sure I can find something to agree with you on. And then we can start to 
take it up from there. And if I can just give one example, um, Julia, I mean, even in our, we, we're, I'm a part of a small working group. We constitute five special rapporteurs. We're drawn from every region of the world. And we come with really different perspectives and backgrounds. We're pretty much representative of feminist movement across the world. And there'll be some who actually are very pro-reproductive rights and others who aren't. And we have to traverse this ground and find some common ground. So what we've found after just headbutting for quite a period of time is if we can step back from people's individual views and try and understand what are the influences that help that individual um, to form that view. So what, what are the influences that shape that individual to hold that view that this woman's likely lying? Um, and when we did that on abortion, what, what we found was that one of our members um, you know, at a very young age, at age 10, her parents had been taken away to a re-education camp. She was there bringing up her, you know, eight-year-old sister, a five-year-old brother. She had no support and the people who would take her in were the Pentecostal church. So she grew up in the Pentecostal church and as a result of that, she holds particular views about women's reproductive rights. Now, once we could go to that place, we could start to map out some common ground and then work out what it is that we could agree on. So what I try to do now is just see if I can find any common ground with that person and then kind of work out from there. Yeah, a strategy I would um, commend, and, and I also use this in teaching and in training, is actually to turn the question around. You partly said that, Elizabeth, but actually to, to actually push it back to the person and say, so, so tell me why you don't believe. What, what is it about this account that is not believable, to, to actually make them articulate rather than you have to be the one to prove. And I do find uh, philosopher, American philosopher Kate Mann's notion of empathy um, very interesting. Um, and, and to just introduce that in those conversations. Why, why do we always, why is it so easy to go to empathy to go to uh, empathy with the man in this situation. And it's so hard to have sympathy for the woman. Um, so, so actually making you constructing what the question becomes rather than being put on the defensive by a challenge to you is you can't always do it, but if you can do it, it, it can change the conversation. I'd, um, I'd agree with that. I mean, just to, to, to the person that asked the question, <clears throat> I, think, I think, well, certainly I feel that too. It's much easier to have the conversation in this space than it is to have the conversation in a social space um, or, or, well, not, not, not for me in case of work, but certainly in a social space um, or even indeed in a political space because these are the arguments, these micro-arguments, these, these everyday moments are what you're sort of battling every day. I mean, this, this is exactly the battleground um, the, the, the every, every moment is a, is a battleground when you're trying to persuade people. Um, and I think I, I tend to do very much what Liz has said. I, I turn the question around and ask them why they think that. I tend not to jump in with the stats because I think people um, can get a bit defensive when, you're, when, when they're presented with a stat which you know, crumbles their, their perspective. But I do, I do tend to ask them, well, why do you think that? You know, and, then, and, then, and then sort of let them talk it through and then ask them why why they don't believe the woman, um, ask them what would happen if 
if actually she was telling the truth and we did we followed this course anyway what what do they think would would, would happen um so actually just sort of journey them a little bit um I find that that tends to be the most effective and then sort of hit them with some stats but it's not easy and I think I think that comes back to what what makes real cultural change happen I think it's all of those many conversations that we can all have um and calling it calling it out um but calling it out in a journeying way I guess if you're if you're not on in a sort of social setting but it's about who influences these people um who who do they listen to whose opinion do they care about who do they want to model themselves on there are there are always people that that we all want to model ourselves on and that's where I think that sort of broader policy and broader awareness raising comes in so you know at the risk of sounding stereotypical if if you had footballers en masse saying a set of things um not that that isn't problematic but that would begin to shift cultural perceptions if you had particular sets of um men that men listen to um saying a set of things that would shift cultural perception but to do to do that to engage them to do that for long enough so it goes deep takes money it takes strategy it takes determination it takes political will um, and I think that's that's really where where we need to come in and try and drive that. Thank you for that. Just looking down again at the questions, there's uh, there's some enthusiasm that we're in a, a, a moment, a building wave. Uh, there's some uh, caution to uh, people who have seen waves before and not seeing them deliver the change that was perhaps promised in the early days. And a theme coming out of those questions is are we as clear as we need to be about what needs to change? What's the, what's the action agenda for, for this wave? Um, I, you know, and obviously there are different lenses on that. People are saying, what should government do? What should business do? What should communities do? That's a big question, I know, but could I throw to you to say, you know, what do you think the you know, three points should be on the action agenda? I think it's it's a, it's got to be a sort of societal root and branch approach because you know, Vogue and um, lack of accountability you know, permeates every every aspect of our of our society. So I guess from my from my perspective, it's got there's got to be a huge awareness raising and countering of cultural norms, and that that I feel can only really be initiated by government with the buy-in of corporates and businesses. Um, and we have seen big campaigns that change societal norms before and make things that are currently sort of broadly acceptable, unacceptable, then it doesn't matter, it doesn't, doesn't mean they won't be, they, they won't happen, but it makes it less acceptable that they do happen. Um, but you know, that, that takes a lot of political will. You're talking about sort of the big health campaigns of the of, of the 80s, say on 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 the big things that that, that changed the way we view um, societal ill. So I think there's something there about really engaging with um, the way that we think as a society, and that permeates across all of our cultural institutions um, and what's what's allowed and what isn't allowed, and what what's challenged and what isn't challenged. So I think there's there's something there, and then I think there's got to be something done around the way that our um, services and institutions that hold policy and law uh, and deliver policy and law operate and the um, norms by which they abide, be it the courts or the way that the police behave or the way that um, 
violence against women, domestic abuse, these issues are taught about and, and spoken about in schools. And at what point, so I think there's, there's something there about the actual services and the framework, the societal infrastructure, if you like, that we all engage with. And I think, I think the third is about movement building piece that we talked about earlier. Unless we can come together as a movement to try and propel these other two pieces, I don't think that it'll happen by, its, by itself. I don't think that... Um, I don't think it's strong enough. I don't think this peak is, is anywhere near as high as it needs to be with us, without us sort of tipping it over the edge. Um, so I think that, 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 that in inverse order, if you like, these are the things that I, that, that I feel very strongly need to, need to happen. And they're, they're, they're long-term goals, but I think change does propel movement. So we need to begin to see things shift, but we're very much at the centre of that. Elizabeth? If I agree with all the things that Farah said there, if I can just extrapolate on one of them, and it's an area where Australia's had quite a strong focus, and that is the role of the private sector in stopping um, domestic and family violence, particularly but violence against women. So recognising that um, if you know, domestic and family violence is not a private matter, so no harm at home, no harm at work, they're part of a single continuum. And if you didn't believe that before COVID, you certainly need to believe it now because your home has become our, my workplace in a sense. Um, so any violence that's happening in your home is very much part of our picture now. And I think um, just looking at what the responsibility of a private sector there is, is not just to support women who are survivors of domestic and family violence, for example, but also to start to understand what is an appropriate organisational response to perpetrators um, of domestic and family violence, sexual violence. And we've just started to put our toe into that area. There's not a whole lot of research around there, but we've kind of gone from a view which was, well, any one of our employees and all our large organisations will have perpetrators as well as survivors. Um, that, you know, they should immediately be exited from the organisation. Now, the whole problem with that is often they're the single source of income into the family and exiting them actually just leads to an exacerbation of the violence in the, fam in the household. So we've now taken a very different view. Uh, the organisational response needs to put the safety of that woman first and foremost in their response um, and then to the extent that, you know, perpetrators of violence against women um, want to shift and change to support that person to actually do that whilst also holding them accountable. So I think what we've seen is that, you know, the private sector, together with government, because it is government's responsibility, but they need to have a greater role. And in fact, it's not until every part of our community, whether it be the union movement, private sector, government, community sector, everyone coming on board, that's what's going to reduce the levels of violence against women in any country. Thank you. Liz? Three things. I want us to have all violence against women and girls and all the context it happens in, in our focus. I want us to have a, a way of thinking and a way of change that includes all women. Too often we have the default white able-bodied young um, woman in our sites. Um, and I want us to think about ways that we can decrease the space for action of perpetrators. That's a way of changing the culture. Uh, if we only think about criminal justice, 
we're never going to get close to any kind of change because so few cases we've already heard go that route. But actually what we need to be thinking about is what is it, what is it in these contexts that makes it possible for men to behave like this and get away with it? What can we do in these contexts to narrow that space so that there's um, social sanctions for their behaviour so that they, it no longer becomes acceptable to behave like that? And I, the last thing, fourth thing, we ought to think about survivors as change makers. I think they have become framed as service users or beneficiaries or whatever language. And, and I think we need to think much more uh, about how much of the movement is a movement of survivors. We only have a very limited time left, uh, four minutes in fact, so I'm going to go uh, to each of you for uh, a one-minute answer to this question, which I think is a great one to end on. What can each of us do to make sure that policy and public attention remains on these issues and that this moment is a catalyst for real change? What can each of the people uh, tuned in uh, today or people in their circle, what can they individually do? Uh, can I go through quickly for a one-minute answer? Elizabeth? I mean, I think we need to keep this conversation going. So, look, of course, people will have different levels of power and influence to the extent they're in circles of, you know, political circles or whatever. They need to be hard, you know, lobbying hard. For change, But if I talk about every one of us in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, we have to keep this conversation going and we have to model respectful behaviour. I mean, I think my, I always say that, you know, human rights starts at home. So how am I walking in the world? How am I modelling the behaviour? Starting there, but then making sure that I'm um, always talking about it. I mean, whatever you know, setting I find myself in um, and also encouraging others to do, to do similarly and particularly men. I mean, it's men taking this message to other men that's going to shift um, a, lo a, a lot of, you know, the problems that we see. So it's men stepping up and probably my biggest contribution to this will not be my body of work, but it'll be raising a son who fundamentally believes that Respect and equality is the only path. That's what I'll leave the world. Thank but you. It's a bit that's... of a work in progress, I should say, right up front. <laughs> Farah. Actually, I, I would have said exactly the same as, um, as, as Elizabeth. I think it is about keeping the conversation going. It's about talking to everybody that you possibly feel able to talk to. There are lots of organisations out there who are running petitions, campaigns, um, and they are different. Some of them are, are, are very, very enraged. Others are, are more civil, if you like, for want of a better description. Um, choose your, choose your organisation and get involved. The more women that continue to be part of the conversation, the harder it is for that conversation to be allowed to wither away. And you know, much like Elizabeth, you know, absolutely, you know, raise your sons to think about this and raise your daughters to think about it. Um, certainly, certainly my son is, is, is now a champion and an advocate. So, um, and is trying to tr trying to engage with other men at his age, he's 21. So I think it's very much um, a case of, 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 of passing on these messages. 
I think it's also about supporting your female politicians, because unless we have women who feel safe in greater numbers and in positions of political authority, um, you know, it's very difficult to get pro-women, women-centred policies. And, you know, I certainly know from being in politics for a decade myself how toxic and difficult it is. So, you know, support them, write to them, show them your support. That's something that you can do in addition to supporting organisations and making your voice heard. Thank you. And Liz, last word. That's a bit of a responsibility. I would say think about the spaces that you're in and, and um, which ones you can have an influence in. It's really important to discover your own voice, the, the message that you want to convey. Sometimes getting involved in spats on Twitter is not a good idea. It's much better to have your own message, a positive message, and try and get support for that. And I think one of the things that I think is really, really important, we all need to keep on learning and thinking. We, di- we discover more things. Uh, we have to backtrack a little bit, um, unpick some of our tapestry and stitch it again. And I, I think we all need to be open to that as well, that, that we're never there. <laughs> we're in movement on the way somewhere. And that to be on, um, to use your... Uh, analogy Farah to be on that journey and be on that journey with others. Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you to uh, the panellists for uh, those insightful uh, final contributions about action that people can take but for all of your contributions today uh, this has been an important and terrific conversation uh, enriched by your perspectives so thank you for joining me. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you.